On this great episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1981 in issues 53 and 54. Contributors for this episode include Bert Bruce, who laments about heartbeats. Shocking John reminisces about the toys of 1981. Lou, Rich, and Max discuss the greatest American hero. Edward German tells us about the fantastic history of Leslie Nielsen and science fiction. Plus, the movies of 1981 and more on this episode of Star Pod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog Magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. ShadowCon, January 6th through 8th, Memphis, Tennessee. It has a little bit of everything. This is actually the first convention of the year. If you want to have some fun, join us at ShadowCon. Starlog Magazine, issue number 53, cover date, December 1981. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Why Raiders? Craig Ewell from Victoria, Australia says, Ever since I started reading your magazine, I have always understood it to be a publication that dealt with the science fiction genre. It therefore puzzles me that a more or less conventional adventure movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark is covered so thoroughly in Starlog. It is obvious to me from the letters that you have printed, there are an awful lot of people who consider Raiders to be science fiction. To understand why, I asked a few of my fellow members of the Science Fiction Association of Victoria what, in their opinion, makes Raiders science fiction. I got answers like, Raiders is science fiction because of the laser beam that was created by the staff of Ra when sunlight hit it, or the Wrath of God scene at the end makes it science fiction. Oh, come on, guys. In the Ten Commandments, God created the plagues and hurled down a pillar of fire from heaven, but nobody calls that science fiction. I'm certain that the real reasons Raiders is considered sci-fi are... Number one, George Lucas because he created Star Wars. Number two, Harrison Ford because he played Han Solo, one of Star Wars' most popular characters. Number three, Close Encounters creator Steven Spielberg. Let's face it, if Raiders had been created and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starred Roger Moore, 
it probably would have received no coverage from your magazine. Starlog responds by saying, You're probably right, Craig, but since so many of our readers did see the film and have enjoyed our coverage of it, next issue there'll be more. We'll be taking you behind the scenes for a look at how special effects were achieved. And this was, we've said it numerous times before, roughly around 1980, Starlog started branching out and doing more coverage of non-sci-fi, especially action and adventure, spy movies, things that we still love. And you have to consider that Starlog was, it's still a magazine, it's still in the business to make money. You know, they're going to report on something that's popular. And we liked it all. I mean, if it was limiting itself to strict sci-fi, there were people you got to figure that were lamenting about Star Wars wasn't science fiction enough. There's always going to be naysayers, depending on your point of view. There are always going to be people who say, why did you cover this? Because, well, you know, their main reason they're going to question it is because they don't like it. <laughs> so, yeah, people have different tastes. But this is the era that I think that Starlog really started picking up momentum because they knew the things that we liked. If you're a science fiction fan, you probably liked James Bond. You also probably liked Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was still within the wheelhouse of our entertainment. This guy's mind is going to blow when he sees uh, in the future, Starlog is going to have a regular column about video games. Because video games were so popular in the early 80s. Starlog was tapping into geek genre films, activities, everything. Things that there was a big audience for. And yeah, most sci-fi fans did like those things and still do. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and act. Science fiction artists bringing the outer limits to New Jersey. Beginning on September 27th, a gallery covering 2,000 square feet was devoted exclusively to an exhibit of fantasy and space art. The D. Christian James Gallery in Summit, New Jersey, featured a wide variety of artists' work, including a selection by the brothers Hildebrandt, who contributed their original drawings for Ursharak and The Hobbit. Greg Hildebrandt's Angel of the Gods was also displayed, initiating his career as a solo artist. The D. Christian James Gallery also exhibited the works of fantasy illustrator Miriam Bierman. This is the type of thing that I wish they would have today. Works that would focus in on space and science fiction art. The only place that we could see something like that now pretty much especially on a larger scale is at dragon con yeah it's you know it was an interesting time back then that they could do things like that um even though science fiction is really more popular now but back then they had these other attractions that you could go see especially respecting artwork of this level the greg heidelbrands the stephen dodds the larry elmores these are the works that we love and they don't get any appreciation in quote-unquote normal galleries. So it's great to hear that they would have things like that back in the day. Raiders Comic Continues Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter announced in September that Marvel will continue to publish their Raiders of the Lost Ark title. The comic will come out on a monthly basis and feature original stories written by the Marvel staff. 
No firm date has been set for the reintroduction of the book, but it is expected sometime in mid-1982. I remember getting the Raiders of the Lost Ark adaption miniseries when it came out, and there was an excitement about a regular series as well. This is where Marvel was tipping its toes in the idea of not only making movie adaptions, but making it an expanded universe. They had a huge success with Star Wars, they did it with Star Trek, and now with Raiders of the Lost Ark. All I, ha- I had the um, the comic for the movie adaptation back then. Yeah, especially with artwork by John Byrne, and it mentions he's best known for his artwork on the X-Men. And the Fantastic Four. Yeah, that was a... T- everything he touched was gold. So to have him involved in this was stellar. Heart beeps. Why does my heart miss when my loved one kisses me? And why does this movie suck so bad? Well, back in 1981, Andy Kaufman wanted to produce the Tony Clifton story. If you know Tony Clifton, he was a loudmouth lounge singer. If you've seen Man in the Moon, you know who Tony Clifton is. Anyway, he was a uh, very rude, very ostentatious uh, late-night lounge singer that was based on a real person. Anyway, so Andy Kaufman and Bob Zamuda, his uh, cohort, wanted to uh, film the, the Tony Clifton story. Well, Universal Pictures said, look, you have no track record. We don't know if you'll carry a movie or not. So make this one for us, and then we'll talk about yours. And the movie they decided to produce was Heartbeeps. Score .00 nothing on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it was a $12 million budget, and it went on to make about uh, 2 to $3 million bucks. I have to admit, I was one of the rare few who saw it in the theaters, and I sat there with my mouth open the whole thing. It was that bad. It starred Andy Kaufman, of course, and Bernadette Peters, who's very babelicious. She, at the time, had been Steve Martin's girlfriend, and she was also in The Jerk, and she was kind of funny in that. Anyway, the... Uh, Short story is uh, Valcom 17485 and Aquacom 89045 embark on a quest to find a place to live, as well as satisfy their more immediate needs for a fresh electrical supply. They assemble a small robot, Phil, built out of spare parts, whom they treat as their child, and are joined by Catskills, a mechanical stand-up comet, and uh, he's seen sitting the entire film. There's a malfunctioning law enforcement robot. The crime buster overhears the orders of the repair workers to get the robots back and goes after the fugitives. With the help of humans who run a junkyard and using Catskill's battery pack, the robots are able to save Phil before running out of power and being returned to the factory. Brought back to the factory, the robots are repeatedly repaired and their memories cleared. Because they continue to malfunction, they are junked. They are found by the humans who run the junkyard and reassembled. In the junkyard, they live happily and build a robot daughter. The film ends with Crime Buster, after only pretending to have his mind erased, continuing to malfunction, going on another mission to recover the fugitive robots. Pretty bad film, directed by Alan Arkush. Uh, The music was by John Williams. It was released uh, near Christmas, December 18th, 1981, 78 minutes. Again, the budget was $12 million. Uh, the box office return was $2,154,696. The cast included, of course, uh, Andy Kaufman, Bernadette Peters, Randy Quaid, 
Kenneth McMillan, Christopher Guest, who you know from Spinal Tap and Waiting for Guffman, Melanie Mayron, Richard B. Schull, and Dick Miller. Dick Miller was a uh, stalwart of uh, many, many films. He worked for Roger Corman a lot and uh, was in all the uh, films of uh, Joe Dante. The article that Starlog details deals with uh, the special effects uh, creator, the robot creator, a guy named Jim Short, S-H-O-U-R-T. If I'm mispronouncing it, I apologize. But Short had uh, been known previously from uh, doing the robots in Silent Running. Now, if you've never seen Silent Running, it stars Bruce Dern, and there are these three uh, robots called Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and he used uh, folks who were amputees in the robot suits. And they were actually very good robots, and the movie tried to be a uh, an ancestor of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Bruce uh, Dern tends to, uh, in outer space, there are these domes that have... Uh, uh, Plants, uh, plant-based domes where they grow food in outer space. It's a pretty good film. If you haven't seen it, please do. But anyway, uh, Jamie Short is his name. He uh, explains that this is the first time in film history that he used a real robot, which I contend may not be totally true. I know George Lucas used remote control robots in Star Wars as well. But uh, he said this was a real robot. It had to really function there was a lot more mechanical engineering, mechanical design, and electronic design involved. This is the only time that a robot has been used in a major motion picture where there haven't been other versions of the robot, dummies or miniature people or bilateral amputees to work the thing from inside. With this robot, every time you see it, it's doing everything. Short's interest in film and technology began when he was quite young. At age 12, he made his first time-lapse movie using a timer device that he himself designed. Throughout high school and college, he paid his way working as a still photographer and cinematographer. Once in college, however, he steered away from a serious study of film for a while to major in marine biology. Through this course of study, he acquired much of the technical knowledge that was to prov provide instrumental in his later success in effects work by learning the fundamentals of engineering, physics, electrical engineering, computer science, and mechanical design. Short's interest in art was then fired up when, in graduate school, he started wandering into the art department at Long Beach State College. He says, I always did things that combined photographic techniques, art, and technology, which is pretty much what I'm continuing to do now. Since completing his schooling, his combined skills in technology and art have been put to use to create special effects for such films as The Andromeda Strain, Meteor, Airplane, The Blues Brothers, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, and Star Wars. On the George Lucas film, he performed an impressive array of functions as he worked on the creation of the computerized camera system, the opti optical printing, the rotoscoping, and design for zero-gravity explosions, and the mechanisms required to film the miniatures, such as electrical and cooling systems. He goes on to say, the pre-production work on fill of heartbeats, beeps, I'm sorry, heartbeats, the knack song is in my head now. Anyway, the pre-production work on Phil of Heartbeeps began with careful reading of the script. I started forming an image of what this thing might be. Script put certain demands on what was designed. It had to be all-terrain, had to be able to climb mountains, had to be able to work inside buildings for interior scenes. The physical constraints of what it had to do, pick up a rabbit, pick up a flower, chase other robots, looked like it had been assembled out of spare parts, 
continually impacted on the possible design parameters. And I'd like you to go, if you can, go to the article and look at the actual uh, fill. It looks like a, a uh, an ancestor to uh, both Johnny Five and then the, uh, the little robot from that uh, cute uh, Disney Pixar film whose name escapes me now. And then if you go and you look at the... Uh, the other uh, erratic crime buster, crime buster looks like if you remember the six million dollar man episode where they had the uh, the uh, device that was on uh, looked like tank treads and it fought Steve Austin. This thing, I think they stole it from the six million dollar man. It's uh, basically a mini car and it's got uh, looks like an octagonal shape around and then a uh, a top dome unit that kind of features uh, an R2-D2 shape with a uh, red flashing uh, light on the very top of it. And it can, uh, again, it's got a flamethrower and it can do some other things. But if you remember that uh, episode of Six Million Dollar Man, I believe they stole it directly from him. Which is, you know, no harm, no foul. I mean, you know, you can reuse things. Anyway, that's a summation of Heartbeeps. And uh, if you've seen the movie, you have my sympathies. Believe it or not, we're back in our chairs. We're here to talk about Starlog Magazine. I'm here with Lou and Max. Lou still has no hair. And Max needs a big chair. (laughs) That's why I have a hat. Hello! Hello! And that's why I... Hi there. And that's why I do have a big chair. Hey. Here we are back again. Yeah, I haven't I haven't manscaped. I haven't man that's true. Uh okay. you know, let's not even get into that. But uh yes, back again with Starpod Starpod Logs, Starpod Trek and doing podcasts again. So excited to be here. I could tell by the expression on Rich and Max's face that they're just <laughs> busting, busting to get the information out. So uh oh. I'll just say I'm Lou Melagrana, and I'm going to turn it over to Max and Rich and uh, let them do their thing. All right. Well, what is what exactly is our thing? Well, our thing today is to talk about uh, the greatest American hero. Isn't that right? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's what what our thing is today. Who is the greatest American hero? Um, (laughs) Well... That could be answered in, in 19, way. right? And well, back back in 1980 something, it was William Cat who picked up a suit that was given to him by a bunch of space guys. Isn't that the most bizarre? Like it it, it it covers everything from like the 70s. It's like superheroes, but we got to throw science fiction in. Like the suit came from outer space. Sure. Like, and we got some spy stuff in there because we got to have uh, you know that that government agent guy. Right, that uh, has to be in there too. Right, Robert Culp played it, playing you know in a government. So we had we had spies, we had superheroes, we had action, adventure, comedy, all kinds of stuff in that. I have to say, I, I did not like him because when I was growing up as a kid, I did not like men with curly hair. Men with I was curly just going to say it had to be something with the fucking hair. So yeah. wait a minute. So I was going to say this when we were chatting before we started, like. How did all these guys in the 80s get this? Everybody perm. had fucking curly hair. Were they permed? Like, everywhere had the Napoleon Dynamite. Like, what the hell is up with that hair? And, like, do you even brush it? Or you just wet it? You just go out and 
like open the car window and just like let it blow dry? I mean, right, what the right. hell is up with that hair? Oh, don't get me started. It, it was just like, yeah, curly hair like freaked me out on guys. Like growing up, I'd be like, I, I, I don't like this guy. So, I can't. Re- He's got this blonde like curly Gabe hair. Kaplan. Yeah, you'd be like Gabe Kaplan. You'd be like Max. You would look great as Welcome Back Carter or Epstein. But I think Welcome Back Carter would have been your thing. The mustache, <laughs> the curly hair, the sideburns. Come on. But I did but, like uh, Robert I, Culp I, because I, I do like Robert right. Culp. He was good in reruns. Great show, Robert Culp. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and from Cosby having on the him other the side. show was a plus plus for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and also well, you Rob, saw it, Max. I, I you know like I said the the um, first episode's kind of long, um, two hours I think was was oh. the time, and um, you know it it well of course they had to set up the whole premise of the show. I, I found I found the show um, watchable. I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, you know, kind of kind of funny. And like I said, you know, the, the amount of actors that were in the show, you know, you talk about Robert Colt and uh, one of the one of the first names that jumped out at me in the credits was Michael Paré. Um, you know, he was the, the younger guy he, he, from the show. And he's also the guy that plays um, Eddie and the Cruisers. You, you probably you got to have seen that one from the 80s. Yes. That's and he's and also Streets. in Streets of Fire, one of my Streets of Fire. Favorite Fire is fantastic. None of you How's have men- mentioned Connie Selica. Connie oh, Selica. You're talking about married to here. Married to Gil Gerard at the time, Buck Rogers. Okay. So do you want to, you want to talk about Faye Grant then? Also, she there played. You go. Uh, there you go. There you she go. She talked about, she played Rhonda, right? There we go. Max, go ahead. Throw those names out, Max. I love it. There you go. You want to throw some names? We could throw some names. <laughs> and this, the show itself, and it's kind of interesting, the article was talking about, like, they're coming into their first full season. I guess they were sort of a mid-season replacement. And, they, you know, they had probably what you saw, Max, was the pilot film, the two-hour episode showing, mm-hmm. like, the whole thing. And then it got successful. They did a few more episodes. Then they got a full season order. And I, I don't think they ever knew what direction to take the show. It was a comedic. Is it serious? Is it a combination oh, of man. both? And, There's no way that show was. I mean, they, they did guy in underoos flying yeah, through the air. They did that like gag all the time where he yeah. couldn't he couldn't fly. Like it's like I don't know how to fly. And you know, no, he could fly. Show, but he goes. finally got the flying, but he, it was the landing thing that was the that was always the problem. Right. He did, but fortunately for him, because of the suit, he never got hurt. And then it was like a different power. Like no, that was his curly hair. Give him. It wasn't the suit that gave was, him the power to fly. It was the curly <laughs> hair. So rich, everybody had curly mm-hmm. hair back in the seventies and eighties. They could fly. That's that's especially if you have blonde hair, and you could really fly. You could go over, you know, like ten thousand feet up. But that's right, and that's why he was. I think when I and clearly, it. that's why he was picked for the suit because uh, you, you know, you know, in, in in the instruction book that he kept losing, it said that you were chosen to defend the frontier against. No, wait, it said you were chosen because of your big curly hair. And uh, it works, <laughs> works kind of like an antenna. Luscious golden curls. But like, if you want to talk about Robert Culp and his sci-fi um, credentials, I mean, yes. he was in two of the best Outer Limit episodes ever. Yes. Demon with a Glass Hand and Architects of Fear. And I mean, those those are like my two all-time favorite, uh, the Outer Limits episodes. And, I used to love you know, that he's, show. He's magnificent those. Yeah, he he was great. I liked Robert Culp a lot. I think he, he, made, he brought a lot of... Uh, you know, gravitas to the show. He had he style. And he, he had style. Yeah, he right? definitely had style, that yeah. guy. I think Cat was sort of the goofy, you know, 70s, 80s, yeah. hippie. I'm dude. the curly-haired clown. 
He had hair like a clown, and then Robert called v- had the nice haircut that never moved. Was it a VW Bug that he drove? Yes, as a convertible. A and that, it's yeah, convertible, and weren't they right? going to make? Did they make that into a toy? Or Mego had that as like a uh, uh, vintage Mego? Was it never made? Or no, was it was made. They made. Yeah, it. they made it. So, so it was a three and three quarter yeah. inch uh, type thing. Yeah, that was it. Was a little expensive, if you will. So, so they made who? Culp. The greatest American hero and the and the bug. You know what? I have the book up there by um, John Bonavita. It's up on the thing. I'd have to go look it up. I know they made the bug. I think they made the bug, him, Culp, and they may have made uh, they may have made the Connie Selica character. I don't remember. I didn't really collect those because only three and three quarters. I really yeah, had I didn't Star either. Wars. You know, that was kind of my thing. With them. Well, it's interesting. I mean, they because they it's interesting you're talking about toys because. You know, even today, I mean, whether or not the uh, the series went long term, you know, we're constantly as as toy collectors, we're we're constantly seeing in our posts where people are talking about how cool it would be to have a Greatest American Hero figure in various sizes. You know, whether it's the eight inch or the twelve inch or whatever. And there's been quite a few people who have who have done them in 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 uh, you know their custom work. Funny in the article too, they talk about bringing. Well, they said Robert Culp wanted to direct some episodes, and that made it difficult. And that they wanted he wanted to bring Bill Cosby in to play the Russian version of the hero. For, for Wait, now, know, would he give? Version. Would he give? Would he be giving women uh, sedatives? That's or what something? I mean. Like, I go, that didn't that didn't age well having Bill Cosby be the villain on the show. But I mean, I guess you know those two guys were were thick as thieves from I Spy. You know, oh yeah, being on the oh, yeah. together and stuff like that. So yeah. But it, it was interesting that he wanted to. Bring, I, I wonder if he ever did show up on an episode. I don't know. I think that was the other thing about the show is it. It never had a solid time slot. They moved it around a lot, so it, it never really took off. Um, I think it's I, remembered fondly by people that enjoy like sci-fi slash superhero type shows because it wasn't just a lot back then. But I, I really don't think it was the. It wasn't like a massive hit. It, it started to do well, and then it sort of petered out rather fast. And for you know. For that for that period of time, I mean, to shuffle, you know, that's a kiss of death when you when you lose a slot or switch a slot, right. um, you know. Now, like it in today's time, you know, that would be like so what, you know, we would just go ahead and record it anyway wherever it shows up, you know, we could set up our DVRs or whatever. But back then, you know, you're, you know, if you're recording it, even, you know, you had to know to switch, you know, your VHS or Betamax or whatever the hell you had. Oh, jeez. Um, what is that? I'm too young to know what that is. Here I am with a paper copy, and if you could, uh, if this was video, you'd see me holding it up right now. Yeah, Issue is. number 51 from October of 1981. I, I was just going to say, for those of you that are unaware, Max is one of the foremost collectors in the world of Grit Magazine. <laughs> he was the first and that's only... Block, and he's going to amaze That's right, I... I did. I amazed all my friends and and made thirty seven dollars over a twelve year co- career of Grit Magazine. Did you trade your six and, months of work in for a pack of garlic gum, or did you get the hand buzzer? What did you, what did you get? <laughs> I mean, you've been buying lots of Starlog magazines, Max. I actually have started to pick up a few uh, as we've been going along um, doing these. It's been a lot of fun. So um, for me personally, it's just it's easier for me to to read a paper paper copy than it is to read. I, I, I agree with you. I 100% yeah. all I do is on a computer all day because of my job. 
I'd rather have a paper copy. I'd rather have a book. I'd rather have a magazine. I'll tell you my favorite, my favorite Starlog issue that I have. I've, I've got a few of them too. I if you do the Bill I, Bixby I, Lonely Man one again, I'm going to no, get a that one's a good one. But I, I have the one that has the the Star Wars Holiday Special in it, where they're promoting the Star Wars Holiday Special. You know, and oh, not that thing that was on like, TV. Yeah, it was on, on one on time only. Oh, one oh. time only. Yeah, there's no, a reason it was no, only on one time only. Known for being the he, first appearance of Boba Fett. He shows up in a cartoon in an animated segment. You know, and, and it's, it it's just that? interesting, just like we're reading this now. Like, it's interesting to read, you know, you got your news that way. You Starlog once oh, yeah. a month. And they're talking about the greatest American hero. And, and here's our plans for the series this season. And, you know, who knows how it went, you know. That's and, really and cool. It is, some, it is interesting. My cousin loved that show where he lived, the part of New Jersey he lived in was so northwest. I mean, it's literally like they had to drive three miles to get their mail because they had to go to the post office. They didn't deliver to the house. I think they loved that show. I think they got two channels and they only got about an hour and a half worth of TV every week. And that's all they watched. They loved wow. that show. Great American Hero. They loved it to the point that, yeah, when he hummed the song like every other five minutes, yeah, I wanted to smack him. That song just became a a nightmare. They it, even they did uh, they even took that song and put it into a Seinfeld episode. That was what George used for his uh, his answering machine message. Oh wow! Oh yeah, <laughs> that right. was a good one. Change the word. Oh, and, the, and the the word the, the the song was popular, and that I do remember from back then. Yeah, that's it's funny how many like theme songs were popular on the radio. You know, you had Greatest American Hero. Chico and the Man. Uh, Don't even get started, with Chico and the Man. Well, you have to remember, Max. There was there was nobody YouTubing and 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 any of that crap. They had like how many TV channels? If there were thirteen channels on the dial, four or five of them maybe worked, and then you got that one UHF that was like really bad. You know things. Well, you had ABC, like CBS, NBC, PBS, and and usually right. one maybe two independent stations. Right. So everybody that was, was your watching choices the back same then. show. Yeah, now you like yeah. you can watch whatever. I can't, man. I can't even follow that. Well, one. to me, it would take forever for a show like this to to be a hit because there's so many options out there now. And I, and again, yeah. I think it was a cult hit. I, I could be wrong because they don't really talk about it in the article about how su- they said it was successful enough that they were doing a, a full first season. I think the other thing they mentioned in the article is that there was a writer's strike at the time, and that could have yeah. affected the show as well, is that they just didn't air episodes because nobody was writing the episodes or anything like that. Like, his suit is just all one bright red piece of suit. It's, it's like, like one of those like, suit. union like, suits that the guys, yeah. the old miners would wear or something like that, you know? And, and it had that weird symbol on it, whatever it was. For Does anybody know what the symbol people. was? I'm sure they explained it. It's, is that an S? Oh, no, it's a symbol for hope. Now, what is this? I guess that's from his alien, wherever he got it from, the alien ship. Right. I guess. It is funny you read the article and they're saying stuff like, uh, well, they couldn't give him, like, he didn't know what all the superpowers were, but they couldn't give him too many or the show would be 10 minutes long and he, you know, overdo well, there was, there, there, was a, there was a manual and he lost the manual. So right. the, I guess the right. alien so was right. smart enough to give him a manual. Flying, like invisibility, right. he grew chia pet hair. Uh, I mean, what, I mean, what else, I mean, what else was, what else was there? I mean, that guy had a telekinesis, like all sorts telekinesis, of telekinesis. There you go. Yeah. I mean, how many superpowers can you have before you run out? I mean, I guess there's plenty, but like, you know, I don't know. I, I just think at some point, like, like they said, they had to balance it. If you read the article, they had to balance it because it's, uh, it'd just be too much. Like the guy would be invincible at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. So, well, and I, and I think that was part of the show too, is to, you know, as he's trying to 
fight crime and, and right wrongs and all that stuff, while at the same time these powers were showing themselves inadvertently. Yeah, that's it's, all. A, it's oh. actually it's a, it's a metaphor for puberty. You've got you go. hair all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, you don't his know head. one day you could do this. His the head, you do his that. head was puberty <laughs> itself. I mean, I'm like, I think we've discovered what the actual metaphor. Oh, uh, we got it the message a, of the show a, is puberty. It was puberty. <laughs> it's puberty and self discovery. The larger the curl, the more superpowers you have. That's all there is to it. I mean, I've got hair where I didn't have hair before. My armpits smell. What's hey, man, going listen. On? And honestly, I'd rather be in my state than growing a big curly bush like that on top of my head. I just, I, I couldn't do that. I'm happy to be where I am. I'm happy to be where I am because that's what it's like. You know, you just shave that off. The next day, it'd be a full grown blowout of curly hair again. You couldn't. It's like a vampire. You couldn't keep it down. Cut it all off. It grows right back. I mean. That's Chia Pet shit on his head. That's for sure. Lou, did you have curly hair when you were a kid? No, I had uh, like not curly. It was like wavy because I would grow up like I would always cover my ears. Like you know Farrah what I mean? Fawcett I like, what's that? I, what? You had like Farrah Fawcett hair, like wavy feathered hair. Well, not quite that bad, but <laughs> but I had it like really long. And the bar, every time I went, the barber would like cut it a little shorter. He's like, yeah, you, you should put your hair over your ears. My ears stick out too far. I'll be very honest. So he kept cutting it. And I'm like, and then each time I went, it got a little shorter. Eventually, I, I just, you know, he's like, see, I told you it looks better. And I'm like, oh, and then I grew it all back. But it would get curly on the end. So I didn't have the Cousin Oliver where it came down. It was straight. And it would stay there. Everybody would had that Dutch curl- leg look in the 70s. Right. It would start curling back out like it was going to grow back inside my head, you know, and, and whatever. So, yeah. So he had like the Doris Day flip. The Doris Day flip or the, uh, the, uh, yeah, the toy poodle hair, you know, that kind of shit. That's what I had. Not anymore. Now it's yeah, just whatever had, I can pull off, you know. Everybody had bangs in the seventies. All boys had bangs. Like it was just like, no, I had weird. the, I had the part on the side and like the big swoop, like the huge, oh, yeah. around, and then up. <laughs> yeah, and they, then, yeah, it was bad. back, back before Bieber made it popular. Yes, it was basically I had to leave it to Beaver, but worse. no, 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 the Justin Beaver or oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but worse. And I had the big TV glasses, the Larry Kings, and all that shit. Oh yeah, dude, it was life was life was hell as a kid. Life was hell. Oh, no. you, you, I needed, were I needed a great Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I needed, I needed a yeah. I was, it was Millhouse. I needed a a suit from an alien being. With a funny symbol on the front, so it could grow chia pet hair and fly erratically or spastically through the air. That would have helped me a lot. Look at you now! This this massive fortune, yeah. mass, a mass a from mass, seeds, right? Of toys and <laughs> models. As an adult, grown man, because I have nothing else better to do with whatever cash, little cash I have to pay for things. And here I am sitting here uh, talking about uh, you know toys and curly. Headed pubic chia people. William Cat still shows up at conventions and stuff like that. Does he still have curly hair? I don't know. Yeah, I don't he's, he's, he's got the, he's, he's got, you know, a more conservative, uh, shorter cut. But from, from, uh, what I've heard, all accounts that I've heard, he's just a really fantastic guy to, to get to talk to. If you get, if you do get a chance to encounter him at one of these conventions, he's, 
he's one of those people who doesn't doesn't seem to like put you off like like Adam yeah, West. Yeah, because the, the shows come around now, and, uh, and and he's sort of popular, and he's got enough credential between this and Carrie, and uh, I'm sure there's They're a big Perry Mason. I'm sure there's a big contingent of Perry Mason fans. They're going to laugh at you. Sure. But, right. There's a huge Perry Mason convention. All four fans go. Are you kidding me? I no, I'm not all four because my wife and I still haven't been. <laughs> I thought Perry Mason was cool. I used to watch it as a kid, so you know. But I love Perry Mason, and we—that—that's our Sunday ritual. And uh, you know, and as he plays Paul Drake, um, you know, on on Perry Mason, I, you know, I, I liked his character. And I, it, I was sitting there saying, you know, I should go to one of these conventions where he goes because of his fame from Greatest American Hero, and tell him I liked I liked him as Paul Drake. You should from Perry yeah, Mason. That's what I remember. They always, they always like it when you bring that. up like a, a a role that they that nobody really that nobody knows. You know. yeah. Yeah, yeah, or that nobody like talk like. Well, in the event that William Cat does check out this uh, this podcast, uh, hi, I like you as Paul Drake. And I hey, listen. I'm nothing against <laughs> you personally. I'm sure your hairstyle was fashionable at the time. It's it's no reflection on you as a person. It was just a, a thing of my personal preference. I did not enjoy men with curly hair. I didn't trust them. No, I, I agree with Rich on that. Sorry. I, I don't, I don't, no offense to anyone who's like that. It was I a seventies thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think guys used to get their it hair. It was seventies. Yeah. Was that yeah, a I, thing that they went and got a perm max? Cause I was just a kid. Yeah. Oh, I know well, I know, I know a lot of, I know a lot of guys that did. I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, my dad even went through that phase. Um, he went from the, you know, the, you know, the 60s where they, they slicked it all back and all of that stuff. And uh, somewhere in the 70s, um, he decided he wanted to get his hair permed. And, you know, he went from being called red to being called fuzzy. So, uh... <laughs> Oh, that's classic. But uh, yeah. I, can't, I, I, can't, I, I could go in a whole other direction about the lonely guy store and the lonely man song and, or the sad man song, whatever it is, but we'll just stay on topic here with the fuzzy heads. It's just classic. <laughs> Does anybody know anybody today with like curly hair like that? No, that's what I mean. Like I, you don't see is there anybody out there who has it. Unless they're psychopaths. Like it's like, <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. That's too funny. Yeah, probably. I mean, I mean Ronald McDonald. Yeah, yeah, right. Is he uh, someone that you look up to and want to hang out with? No. And and you notice that uh, even McDonald's has tried to distance himself from Ronald. Have they really? Yeah, that's true. They don't do that anymore, do they? When was the last time you saw a McDonald's commercial featuring Ronald McDonald? I haven't, but I will say this. Years ago, I looked up how much could Ronald, how much could you make as Ronald McDonald? The guy who was like the main Ronald McDonald, uh, Ronald McDonald clown. Like the main one, or however many they were, they made, uh, and this was maybe twenty years ago. They were making three hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow, That's a I could live on that. <clears throat> for that, live. I would. For that, I would. I'd get curly hair and a big red nose. <laughs> I'd be all right with that. And a big hey. red nose. I'd walk around like that all day. Money falling out hey, of my pocket. Think that Wait the consensus minute. amongst us is that he was not the greatest American hero. Wait a minute. Max, are you wearing a red shirt with long, a long sleeve red shirt? Because people can't see. He is, I am. He's doing the. He's doing his his Wisconsin greatest American hero, Maximus. That's right. Did that come That's from right. outer space? I just realized man? that. 
There you go. So without further ado, I'm Dr. Grant. <laughs> you can catch me on YouTube or uh, around Facebook. And uh, my cohorts in crime here are... Okay, well, I'm Max Overnighter, and you can catch Rich on Dr. Durant's Sanctum. And you can also catch our fearless leader, Lou, at my Like and Like on Facebook, and I kind of hang out there with him. This is Richard Myrick from The Toys That Made Us, and you're listening to Star Pod Log, the classic science fiction and fantasy podcast. Let's talk about some toys that were popular in 1981 for this special segment. I'm going to bring on my brother, the one who I shared the toy box with in 1981, John from Shocking Things Podcast. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me on there. All right, so let's talk about 1981. What were some of your fondest memories with regards to toys of that era? Okay. 1981. So we had Empire Strikes Back figures came out. That was the big two. one, I'd say. That was that, the you know, the dominating. Uh, definitely. Also, uh, Clash of the Titans, correct? That came out, the film? Yes. Yep. Right, was that the 1981? We, we had the entire line of figures. This was the era when they would make an entire line of figures be like six figures, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was definitely, right? uh, yeah, for something like that, the the. The Holy Grail, that's the Kraken, which is the big deal. That was okay, the one. let's talk about Clash of the Titans for a second. So we both love that movie. I remember we would get the action figures. When you got the Kraken, your mind exploded. You just loved that so much. Oh, I still remember. Do you remember the story behind how I got it? Didn't you get it at Sears? Okay, this was... Right? I never, and probably you, never knew this thing existed. It's one of those correct, things, correct. certain times you have to remember back then, you had no idea what was actually released and what wasn't. You'd see things on the back of the package, but, okay, I don't see it in the stores. Then you find out years later it was never released. It was just a prototype. Yes, so this, yes. never saw it, and our father, we're in the car. He's like, ah, oh, I want to, you know, I'm going to bring you somewhere. Like I said, I want a toy or whatever. He's like, oh, okay, I'll bring you. We'll go to Sears. I'm like, I don't want to go to Sears. I don't have anything good there. Let's go to Child World. <laughs> that was the argument. He's like, he's like, nah, nah, Sears. Let's go look at Sears. I said, why? I said, Just go across the street. I said, they don't have anything. I remember I kept arguing. Okay, so, like, so here's the thing. There's nothing the, there. That, the, here's the thing. It's like Child World had everything. The thing that I did like about Sears, though, it was Sears on Dixwell Avenue, Hamden, Connecticut. I love going down the escalator. Because okay. escalators yes. to me were fun. So you went downstairs. I liked Sears because they always had an Atari and a television demo there. So you could go to the electronics department and demo games, which I love doing. Remember they had the Sears version okay, of Atari? Yeah, yeah. I forgot Remember about that? this until you said that. But yes, yeah. What was the Sears version called? Like, Oh, boy. It was a knockoff. I remember uh, like, I was just so glad that we got the real Atari, not the Sears one. Yeah. I, I, it was one of those things that was just kind of weird to me. I wanted the real, but but I still like going there and playing the demo version. But you had to go down that escalator, down into the basement for the toys. The only thing that was that was unique about Sears is they had their own line of toys sometimes. But you would find exclusives, at Sears exclusives, ex- yes. exclusives, yes. But the thing is about Sears, and I know this is what we're leading up to, is 
they would have random weird stuff sometimes because a lot of people did not go there specifically for toys, right? They went to child work. Yeah, toys. no, yes. Like, like, Very, here's, yeah, they, here's was an afterthought. Yeah. Yep, didn't have. So what the story was, they so kept saying, now let's go there. I'm just like, I don't want to go. So for, obviously I didn't have any choice. I'm a little kid, so he's driving like, all right, and I'm getting a free toy, so I have to kind of shut up, right? Yeah. So we go there. He's like, okay, this is why I brought you here. They had the Kraken on clearance for $4. And isn't that just insane to think that? <laughs> so he said he saw it. He knew I'd like it. So he well, wanted to make sure, and that's why he brought me there to see it. I was like, oh. And I just – the artwork on the box, one of the nicest the, – the paintings, I don't know if you remember, but the oh, painting – Oh, I can picture it in my head. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. So – Got it, and I and and he laughed because I'd say, okay, I I take back what I said. It was the story. It was good coming to Sears today, but yep. yeah, so that stood out as one of my favorites, you know, for 1981. Yes, yeah, and and I can agree with that. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Monchichi. Yeah, I did have one of those stupid things. <laughs> Don't ask me why. And they have the, the cartoon. Don't ask me why. We all do things when we're kids like, why do I like this idiotic thing? But that's one. You love there is something that else. song. Yes, it, that's what it was, the commercial. The, it was very catchy. Uh, you know what else came out in 1981? What? That uh, I thought was great. The Charlie McCarthy ventriloquist dummy. Yeah, I remember you had that. That's right. And you were too afraid to sleep with it in the bedroom. So you exactly. put it in the living room before you went to sleep. That's that's the trick. Why were you afraid <laughs> of it? Oh, you, know, you see like a movie like Magic. I don't know if you have you ever seen that film, Magic. No, nah, I remember Twilight Zone though. Twilight Zone, Magic, like those, you know, scare the crap out of me. But I still wanted to watch it. But yeah, but actually having the dummy in the room wasn't really the greatest idea. So that's uh, uh, what about up? Sergeant Rock figures? I loved them. One of the handful <laughs> of kids that enjoyed them, but I, I actually liked them. <laughs> and what were the enemies called? I think they're just called the bad guys. <laughs> the bad guys. And a lot of imagination a ripoff. There. We'll talk about another great toy line, but uh, it didn't come out yet. That was 82, right? But uh, yeah. for G.I. Joe came out. The well, that's what I'm saying is this predates G.I. Joe. So technically, yeah, technically you're right. So there was – they had the guys like a Cobra logo on his chest. So That's what I'm saying. When you look so at this, did it rip, did this it predates rip it off. Joe. They didn't and rip did, it off. They just yeah. – I'm saying, yeah. So – and also I believe – the other toy line, did Eagle Force, what year did that Eagle come out? Eagle Force, was that, that's another – That's uh, we're going to have – now we're going to talk about the – the, the geniuses at Mego. Eagle Force came out that year. So this was a military line where everyone wore gold. They were little die-cast metal figures. You loved them. Oh, I thought they were great, yeah. I remember getting hit in the head with them, though. Those things hurt. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was definitely that – was, that was cool. Uh, we never had them, but they were released in 1981. And as an adult collector, I had to buy them because they're so ridiculous. The love boat figures. I remember our them. cousin. I yes. remember our cousin Mark wanted them, and like this kid didn't like action figures. He like he was a car kid, so uh, he had du- 1981 was big for Dukes of Hazard toys because yeah. he had the General Lee, he had the Matchbox version, the big version. I mean, lots of General Lee stuff. Uh, we were getting Dukes of Hazard Mego dolls, 
But with regards to Love Boat, Mark said, oh, they have Love Boat figures? I'll get a Love Boat figure. And we both looked at him like, what in the world would you ever do with a Love Boat figure? Yes. That's one of those things like, why do you think Mego would ever think that would be a popular toy? Well, yeah, I was a kid and I saw them like, okay, I watched the show, but I don't need action figures of them. So, so yeah, so not, not my favorite, but now as an adult, I think they're hilarious. Nothing has changed. You know, in this era, we have Facts of Life and Brady Bunch Mego dolls. It's just, it's just, it's nothing's changed uh, when the world is going. Definitely. Okay. Smurfs was huge. In 1981, because they were coming to America at this point, it was yeah, from it was Germany, pop- right? It's, it was popular in Europe in the 70s, and finally right. was making their way into, into America. Everybody had Smurf stuff, right? They were very expensive at the time. I remember that's why. Yes. If I'm not, and you couldn't just get them anywhere. You had to go like specialty stores to get them, right? Yes. Yeah, and I. I want to say it's something like four dollars. It was more than that. It, it was, and there were there really wasn't much to it. Yeah, but very tiny. of course, Bigo wanted to jump on that bandwagon, and in 1981, they released the worldwide hit, the Clown Arounds. I had one, if you remember, had the Frankenstein one. Because <laughs> I like Frankenstein's monster. It's the only one I ever had. Because I'm like, well, I like Frankenstein monster, and I get any <laughs> any figure related to him, so yeah, I got that. Yeah. Frankenstein monster with clown makeup <laughs> makes no sense, but I had to have it. You know, then the they, they, they yeah, made this... a Ronald Reagan one. Do you remember That's that? Right. They, did. they did, which is hilarious. But I yeah, think it was that called was... Ronald Ray Clown. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's great stuff. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's hilarious. But yeah, that was that's a very very memorable figure to me. No one else in the world, but I, I think the big one for that era though was Empire Strikes Back. Oh, that was huge. That was, I mean, like no doubt about it. That was the the big one. I mean, definitely, definitely the the most popular. Uh, we, had the day, we had the Dagobah, we had the Dagobah play set because even though Empire Strikes Back came out in 80, they were releasing everything in waves, which was smart, not just dump everything. But they, they did a variety and then did a variety, did a variety. They, they just kept doing it up until Return of the Jedi. Yep. That one I, I remember father got me that at, um, Caldors or something like that, or Woolworth, I think, right? Woolworth, there was another it, one on clearance, yes. I think. Uh, well, I remember that the Dagobah was on clearance because the box was just so beat up. Yeah, and it had and the sticker like, on it. Yeah. Woolworth uh, sticker, that's how I remember that. Yep. Yeah, yep. that was fun, and now you can't find them with the foam intact. All the foam disintegrated. Which makes sense, yeah. Well, what other, what other toys from, from, the, from the Empire line? I mean... More than anything, so the, we have to talk about the big, the big thing. Well, the, well, the ad at was like, I mean, that was amazing to have. That was when that we time. opened that up on Christmas. There's a picture that proves it. I was just so excited. Oh, yeah. absolutely amazing! You know the picture I'm talking kid. about? Yeah. So there's you see a picture my my for my, my face of glee. You, feel, you see how excited I am to have the yeah. the ad at? Yeah, describe are, the picture. Yeah, so it's. Brother and I in front of it's a very 70s looking, it's about as 70s as you can get. We're in front of this tinsel Christmas tree. <laughs> it's like all orange and brown all over, probably right in the room. Yeah. And I'm all excited holding the box of the ad ad. I'm like, like sticking my tongue out or something. And Ryan looks like, 
like, yeah, this is, he's his head down, his hands in his pockets, like, yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> he looks all, like, disgruntled because he got, like, the, the best toy of that year for Christmas. He, he, he's very grumpy. Like, someone took well, I remember, cereal. I remember, like, I want to play with this toy. I'm like, wait, before you play with it, let's take a picture. Well, man, I want to play with it. I don't want to take a picture. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was definitely hilarious. I mean, you look at it now, it's definitely funny. But, yeah, one of the best toys because they had the chin guns that, that lit up. Yeah. And they rotated. Uh, I also loved for vehicles. I was never a huge vehicle person, but I did love the snow speeder. Oh, absolutely. Well, the snow speeder come out the year before or did it come out that year? Uh, yeah, good question. Because I think head, I, I, sure. I think it Maybe. came out the year before because okay. I think I think I was just going first, by memory. Possibly. Because I'm possibly. thinking we got that either for Christmas in 1980 or I got that for my birthday in 1981. But I know we had that before we yeah. had the ad. Yeah, don't remember exactly, to be honest with you. But yeah, that's – But Slave 1 – I know you were a massive Slave One fan. Just just for the Han and Carbonite, that was that oh was, my that god, was a you love that the Han thing. and Carbonite. You, you, you can only get it with that. that. Oh, you were losing your mind playing with that because you love Boba Fett. Yeah. And know what I remember? We never had it, but a kid at school had it. The Yoda puppet from 1981. Never. It's funny, even as a collector. Yeah, who was I remember? Danny Kittle had one. If that's the kid you're thinking, that's one kid I know. Yes, yes. And but, I remember uh, putting my hand in it and it being so filled with sweat and grime from the playground. Yeah. Like, I never want to put my hand in that thing ever again. It was disgusting. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely was. You put your hand up Yoda's butt as a kid. But yeah, <laughs> it was, uh, but yeah, that wasn't bad. But I never, as an adult, yeah, I never went out and said, I'm going to buy this now as a collectible. Never. Never did for whatever reason. Just never grabbed me enough, you know, for some for whatever really reason. Now you're a you're a Lando out. fan. Were you excited yeah. with that's that's one of the things that I think was great about the Empire Strikes Back toys, but I think they missed the mark of not making enough things for Bespin. Yes, definitely. I mean I love, love, love Bespin and I wish there was more. So I mean they made that cardboard was that a series exclusive to the playset? There's like a cardboard playset. Mm-hmm. Not very good, but hard to find, so it wasn't easily accessible. Wasn't really that great, but yeah, they could have really done like something with like a freeze chamber or something. Like they did that, with the micro collection. Yes, Absolutely. like that was like the micro collection. That stuff was great. Like, you know, so if they did something on a larger scale, it would have been perfect. Definitely. I mean, there's probably things like right, so Presto Magics coming do, out, do you, too. Do you remember – wait, the Presto Magics? Yeah, do you remember, like, that stuff? That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. That type of stuff was coming out. Now, let me ask you this. When you had Presto Magics, did you really put a lot of thought into where you're going to scratch those things off? <laughs> Sometimes. I did. I did. Sometimes. Man, I only got one – this isn't a color form, so I got one shot at this. I'm going to yeah. make sure it's a good one. I specifically remember having a Superman one. Do you remember that? With That's Metallo. right. I do remember it. I, I remember yes. that and thinking like, oh, wow, this is the coolest character, Metallo. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. had the kryptonite in his chest and the, right. placed him perfectly on the building. So, yeah, that was uh, definitely, definitely great stuff. And what about – um, it was a year – I think it was 1980 that was probably still being released, like the – the Remco uh, Universal Monster stuff, but that was like they're probably still producing things, but it started off in 1980, right? Yeah, so we would have got it because a lot of that stuff, even even if it had a, a stamp on the package, a 
of like 1980. By the time it made it around and we were able to get it, sometimes there was a huge delay. Because remember that like years later when we were into wrestling figures, we would go down south. South had all these wrestling figures. It didn't make its yeah, way up to New England yeah, the yet. Distribution, like how, distribution yeah. was so weird. Yeah, it was. So definitely that's that's something of honestly we probably still had like nineteen eighty one bought those, right? It didn't have to be exactly nineteen eighty, even though the package said it. That's that's right, like that's right. Licensing and so but yeah, that's definitely something I could think of that stands out to me. Alright, do you remember the mail away for for nineteen eighty one on the Star Wars packs? They had these Empire Strikes back. They're like little displays. It was it was uh, I know it was you're like talking about square. That's one of the because we kept mailing away for figures, but we never just sent away for this display. Never got that. I know you're. And it's one of those things I kind of look back and say, man, I wish I had it because we had that display for the original twelve Star Wars figures. This would have been a good complement to that display. Yep. Now, yeah, that we we missed a boat on that one, unfortunately. But you can't have everything, right? Yeah. Oh, another thing that was on the toy shelves in 1981 was. The Star Trek, the motion picture, Ilea figure. <laughs> well, yeah, that was still in the early 90s. They couldn't get rid of them. That was, yeah, that was still there. The only one left on the shelf. No kids wanted that for some reason. But, yeah, that that was still on the shelf. Definitely, definitely still on the shelf. 81, Remco still was making some monster stuff. Do you remember they had – and because we had the pocket monster figures, universal figures. Remember they had this, like, play set with – had like a, yeah, a I never had the monsterizer. There's a monsterizer. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, you, no, no, the, no. That's the, the big thing. That's the big thing. The house. Yeah, yep. I, I had the house. I remember. You had the house that. though, right? For the little pocket yes. figures. Yep. Yeah, like a play case or whatever Try they call that. Try to describe that. what that was and what it was like getting that when you first received it. Okay, it's actually there's two. If Remco made when you brought up Sergeant Rock, they made a Sergeant Rock one. I also had, if you remember. Oh, that's right. That's right. And yeah. so I'll describe both. So the the Universal Monsters, uh, it's basically it's a little almost this like the size of like a little like lunchbox type thing, but slimmer. You open it up, and there's Dracula has a tomb. You could put Frankenstein's monster on a table. So a little playset, and you can also keep all your figures inside there. So that was the nice thing about the size of the three and three quarter inch figures, but. In that little play case, you could bring it around, open it up, you have a little play set. So, mm-hmm. and it looked, you know, it was, I thought it looked really cool. They had like the artwork inside of it. It looked nice. And the Sergeant Rock one was like, uh, like a building that had like bullet holes through the, you know, the, the doors and the windows. I don't know if you remember that at all. But, I, uh, I really didn't like the Sergeant Rock figures. When you okay. bring home a Sergeant Rock figure, I just like, God, this is stupid. Yeah, I didn't yeah, like their. I didn't like that. Like Sergeant Rock had his hand like he was cupping someone's balls or something. It just, it, it just <laughs> didn't make sense. I didn't. Yeah, it didn't make any sense the way they the hands were positioned on some of them. It was definitely odd. And the, but the knees were articulated, if I'm not mistaken, right? But then the the elbows weren't. But I don't know. I liked them. I, I was I liked everything for whatever reason back then. Oh, you were you were like the ultimate king of toys when it came to diversity of lines like you you kind of wanted to have every single whatever if it was that child world you wanted it and i liked all the oddball stuff it didn't have to be popular yeah. it didn't have to be whatever like i said transformers 
I didn't care about it. I didn't. I got bored with it. I think it's a very boring toy line. You know, it's yeah. Nineteen eighty one was a great year for toys. There's there's no doubt about it. And it was it was a springboard going forward too. Well, thanks for joining us on this segment talking about toys of nineteen eighty one. Tell our listeners where they can find out about your awesome podcast. Okay, uh, if you go on any podcatcher, you type in shocking things, you'll find us. Uh, we're also on Instagram. Twitter, Facebook. Uh, the main hub for the links to everything is go to anchor.fm slash shocking things. So there's a lot of different things we're talking about, and uh, there's going to be a lot more episodes coming up. It's going to be a lot of fun. Child world, child world, the super toy store and a whole lot more. You're busy, and child world knows it. You only have so much time and so much money for that special toy for that special kid. At Child World, we've got what you want, and we'll save you money. Ah, we make Christmas fun for people who don't have all the time or money in the world. Child World, Child World, a super toy store and a whole lot more. It's new AT-AT, the all-terrain armored transport from Kenner. Batteries not included, action figures each sold separately. You can make AT-AT war. Its legs are big enough to crush obstacles. You can move AT-AT's head and pretend to scan for rebels. AT-AT has a cockpit for Imperial Commander and AT-AT Driver and laser machine guns. When you push a button to fire the laser cannons, you activate battle lights and sounds. There's even a troop compartment. New AT-AT from Kenner's Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back Collection. Starlog Magazine, issue number 54, cover date January 1982. <laughs> Log Entries, Latest News from the Worlds of Science Fiction and Fact. Star Wars, Empire, Going Once, Going Twice. 20th Century Fox has put both Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back on the TV auction block, with the bidding set to begin at $20 million. The two-film package would allow the winning network to run both films once sometime in 1982, According to Variety, no network would be able to cover the cost of the package with just advertising revenue based on 35 30-second spots priced at $200,000 per spot for a two-and-a-half-hour time period. That would raise $7 million per film for the networks plus $1 million per film from local advertising for the individual stations. So we are at the dawn of 1982 which many say is the best year ever for geeks when it comes to film, when it comes to what's on television, and now we have movies that are going on to television. It was an amazing era to be alive and and to be a sci-fi fan. And to think Star Wars was finally going to be on TV after not being on TV in so many years. Oh, it was so... <laughs> I know exactly. This is type like... This was, many people said, like, this was this generation's Wizard of Oz. Because it took years for Wizard of Oz to get on television. It didn't go to television as quickly as other movies. So this was amazing news. But but they they actually sold both movies as a set. I mean, they could yes. have made a lot of money dividing them up as well. Yeah, the, and the article talks about Wizard of Oz. It's, it's interesting because... I remember when this happened, when it came on TV, we watched it, and I remember my mother 
making the mention, tell me about Wizard of Oz, how that was, like, that was so newsworthy at the time. And it says that Variety also reports that one network already has made a counter offer, because it's going back and forth between different networks, looking to get a multi-year, multi-showing pact similar to CBS's long-running deal with MGM for The Wizard of Oz. If a multi-year package is sold, Fox thinks it may be in a position to get $60 million per film for, say, a 10-year, 10-showing deal. So we know that that did not happen. It was not an annual event like Wizard of Oz. They made a, a one-time deal for the showing of it. But in related news, HBO, the largest cable service in America, has reportedly paid $10 million for the rights to broadcast Superman 2. A record high for a cable sale. Amazing. The, these shows, these movies had to be sold to TV stations for a lot of money. Surely you can't be serious. I am, and don't call me Shirley. Well, how many of us have heard that line before? I'm sure that most Star Poglog listeners have heard that line at one time or another. Well, it was spoken by Canadian actor, Le- actor Leslie Nielsen over the comic Spoof Airplane. Airplane launched his comic career in movies. However, before Airplane, he played a serious he played a serious dramas which included science fiction. Nielsen is best known to sci-fi fans as Commander Adams in the 1956 movie Forbidden Planet. However, we fast forward 25 years from the release of Forbidden Planet to talk how the actor now spoofs the very same character in a new movie. Hello again, I'm Edward German, host of the 1950s science fiction podcast. Today I'll be discussing an interview with actor Leslie Nielsen in a Starlog exclusive. Leslie Nielsen, A Quarter of a Century Between Flights, From Commander Adams to Captain Jamison, by Steve Wires. Writer and director Bruce Campbell sought out Nielsen for his new movie, The Creature Wasn't Nice, due to Nielsen's recognition as Commander Adams in Forbidden Planet. Campbell says, once you see Creature, you'll never be able to watch Planet without laughing. However, Nielsen didn't make the comic connection when he accepted the part, but looked at it as an opportunity to work at what Hollywood was making at the time. He says there were so many fantasy films. Everything is weird, serious, unreal, and interesting. I just want to get in there and laugh at it. I love doing straight comedy, he says. In the movie, Nielsen plays Captain Jimmy Jameson, the commander of the starship Vertigo. He co-stars with Cindy Williams, Patrick McNee, Garrett Graham, and Bruce Kimball. The crew is on a mission to a pulsating purple planet where they obtain a jelly-like substance that can change its shape. Upon arriving on the ship, the substance becomes a ravenous monster and attacks the crew just as it performs a song and dance number. It is, it is described as alien meets airplane on all kinds of hijinks as Sue aboard the ship. Kimmel takes pot shots at some of his own favorite science fiction movies throughout the film. From experience in Airplane, Nielsen knew how to play Jameson in a satirical way, unlike Commander Adams, who was very level-headed and cool in the crisis. Jameson would stand for one moment, get suggestions from a fellow crew member, repeat what they said, and take credit for it. As you can probably guess, no one has any respect for him, and Jameson thinks he's all that in a bag of potato chips. Nielsen says that no one respects you if you play the character in a way that whatever you do is important when the character is ignorant. It can be funny. In the past, Nielsen has played serious and straight characters in movies and TV shows. He, is, he says playing a character like Jameson is not the type 
a role most audiences would expect coming from Nielsen. Playing that type of role helped expand the range of his work and made it challenging for him. He says in the interview, not so long, not so long ago, I may have taken myself more seriously than I do now, but I don't take myself seriously now at all. I even hesitate to say that because it sounds like I, sounds like a serious statement. <laughs> During the production of Creature, Nielsen had the chance to work again with English actor Patrick McNee, whom he worked with in the Disney TV show The Swamp Fox back in the 50s. Nielsen loved working with McNee again. He says he is a wonderfully droll actor and is really exci- excellent in the film. Nielsen, Nielsen enjoyed playing, working on the creature, but the five weeks shooting schedule made him concerned about the project. He says, we were having so much fun doing it and discovering other things while shooting the movie, but the director did a very good job of keeping things together. The creature wasn't Nelson's first foray into science fiction since the 50s. He loved sci-fi and was happy to work in it again. Nelson was offered the role in The Fly, but turned it down even though he had acted in Forbidden Planet. He felt, he felt at the time it was a risky for his career. The sci-fi was not held in high regard as it was as it is today. He didn't want to be typecasted, and he does say that science fiction is mind-boggling and it opens up the vistas of your imagination and your thoughts. You travel so far and so many premises that are unusual and stimulating. As for Forbidden Planet, Nielsen says it's a classic movie. He's very proud to have been a part of its production back in the 50s. It's a landmark movie, he says. One of the in one of his favorite experiences. Nielsen says everything was done right for the movie. There was enough time and effort made, and the budget and elaborate sets were made the krill and the planet believable. It is a great A movie. Problem was the movie poster, which depicted Robbie the Robot carrying a scantily clad female, put it as a B-grade pulp sci-fi instead of an intellectually challenging story. Well now, well now that's all for this segment. There's more about Leslie Nielsen in the Starlog article. I do encourage you to read it for yourself. It's a great read. The article mentions some of his other works on TV and movies. If you love 50s sci-fi like Forbidden Planet, feel free to tune into my podcast, the 1950s Science Fiction Podcast, hosted by me, Edward German, via Anchor FM. My show covers everything from thinking people movies to science fiction movies like This Silent Nerve to B-movies like The Creature from the Atom Brain books and comic books to short stories, radio dramas like Dimension X and other old-time radio, and TV shows like The Adventures of Superman. My podcast can be found can be found just about anywhere you can stream or download it. Hey, let's run down some of the movies that were popular in 1981. We can't forget the epic colossal failure, it's rated one of, if not the worst movie of 1981, and I contend it's not that bad, but it was pretty bad. The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Yeah, I thought it was, it was pretty slow. That was the problem. I mean, we even had the action figures of it, believe it or not. Kenner made them. They were expecting that there would be a newfound interest in Western action figures during that time period, uh, tying in with the movie. They were hoping for it to be a success, to revigorate a generation into this character so much so that the studio forbade clayton moore who was the lone ranger in the tv series from making appearances with a mask on because they wanted to pass the torch to to a new actor 
it didn't work out at all. It, it was pretty much, like you said, it was slow, and it was a financial failure. Shock treatment? Another failure. A sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Did not work out at all. Incredible Shrinking Woman. I love that movie. I have to say that 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 one was one of my top movies of 81, believe it or not. Yeah, that one was a lot of fun. I saw it on Showtime back then. They used to play, okay, a lot of these movies, this was the era that many of them went to the home box office Showtime movie channel fairly quickly. If they weren't huge successes, they went to cable quickly, and I watched that in repeats a ton of times. What about Heartbeats? Yeah, I kind of I kind of liked it when I saw it back then. <laughs> I haven't seen it since then. It was a movie that I would struggle to watch it. I remember seeing it and saying when it came on TV, saying like, eh, it's science fiction. I'll watch it, kind of. It has Laka Gravis in it. I can't really say I liked it, but I did watch it because it was so strange. Condor Man? I had the comic book series of it, believe it or not. I even remember where I bought the comics from. I brought them from Child World, and I never even saw the movie. I just bought the comic book adaptions. Um, Modern Problems? Pretty rough movie. Was Chevy that the Chase? one? Yeah, Chevy Chase? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he kept having these stinkers. It's so strange that he was a top-billed comedian at the time. Again, this was the Saturday Night Live era. Anyone who was on Saturday Night Live were starting to get movie contracts, and not all of them were very good. How about Under the Rainbow? Um, not really good either. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, comedy with Carrie Fisher. And Chevy Chase. He did two yeah. movies in one year. <laughs> so they were making these movies fairly quickly on a low budget. I'm a huge Wizard of Oz fan, have been since a child. I never really liked this movie as a kid, kind of watched it. Just because it was on, and as an adult, we rewatched it, and it was like, eh. It was a struggle. The Great Muppet Caper. I saw it in the movie theater. I don't think I saw that one. I just saw the first Muppet movie. I would watch anything with Muppets on it. Nighthawks. I thought it was good. Sylvester yeah. Stallone and Billy D. Williams together. Yeah, I thought it was a great movie. It was basically an all-star cast. Um, not only those two, but... Persis Gambada, Lindsay yes. Wagner. And her hair grew back fairly quickly when you can see her. She shaved a ball for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, I mean, and she still, you know, she looked pretty good in this movie. Played a villain in it, but it mm-hmm. was uh, it was an interesting part. Nice Dreams. I had no idea about drug culture. This was one of the ones of these Cheech and Chong movies would that would be on TV. I would watch it and say, like, why they act? They're just weird. I didn't. I just thought they were smoking cigarettes and they were cheap and they didn't couldn't afford to buy cigarettes, so they had to roll their own. That's how naive uh, I was. <laughs> well, that's why you know the movie wasn't made for kids. <laughs> Caveman. Okay, we saw that. Believe it or not, in a drive-through. And here's the story behind it. My father heard that there's no words in the movie, and he had this brilliant idea. To park on a hill near the drive-thru, and the whole family would watch the movie for free. And since there's no words to it, you didn't have to have the sound. <laughs> and well, I, remember, I mean, there must have been music, right? Yeah, there was music, but we just sat there and watched it in the car. And I remember my mother saying, yeah, because uh, it had Ringo Starr. It starred him. And Barbara Bach. And I distinctly remember my mother saying, 
The only reason she married him is for his money, because it's certainly not for his looks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty rough movie. Dragon Slayer? I enjoyed it at the time. I didn't love it. I would watch any science fiction, any fantasy movie. It's one of those ones that I like the first half of it, and then it just starts dragging and moving forward at a weird pace. It was Disney's foray. At this time, Disney wanted to tap into everything. They wanted to branch out from just doing family-friendly entertainment, so they're doing science fiction and fantasy. Not bad, not great. History of the World Part 1. We rewatched this recently. They couldn't make a movie like this nowadays. It was pretty outrageous, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I always enjoyed it. I watched <laughs> another one I watched on Showtime when I was a kid. Yeah. And they never made a part two. Which no, threw me off. Was, like, why yeah. is it called part one and you don't make a part two? Friday the 13th part two, though, continuing the, the slasher series. Speaking of slasher series, closing in on that type of theme is... Mommy Dearest... We rewatched that recently. Um, it was, what can I say? It was a movie. <laughs> it was disturbing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to see, uh, we watched it as kids, and I remember my mother putting on cold cream one time and teasing us, and she ran in, in our bedroom when she was tucking us in saying, no wire hangers. We were going, oh. ah! She recreated that scene. So, um. I remember but, you saying the movie was like a horror movie because, because of the way she treated her kids, it was awful. Watching it as an adult now, I find it more terrifying because there are parents that it psychological trauma can really mess a kid up real bad. Yes. Real bad. And and to me, that's more of a horror movie than Friday the 13th because this is real life going on. You know, parents treating their kids horribly. It was, it's a very disturbing movie. Worth watching though. Uh, uh, it's, I don't want to say I enjoyed it, but but it, it it's very memorable. The Howling. We're going to see that this is a year that there are multiple werewolf movies. Kind of like 1979 had multiple vampire movies. Halloween 2. Another sequel. They were pumping out these Halloween movies and Friday the 13th movies in the early 80s. Now, was this the time when like when sequels started becoming popular? Super popular. Yeah. Yeah. Once once you had uh like Empire Strikes Back I and mean, Superman that, you know. Two. This this is one of those weird years that Superman Two was released a year earlier in Australia in December of nineteen eighty, but at the beginning of the year of nineteen eighty one. It's it's we would never have that nowadays. Have a movie being released months later in another part of the world. But sequels were becoming popular. Scanners? Man, that was a weird movie. Sci-fi horror. Yeah, it's just odd. Heavy metal? I wish they made a series of these movies. I love the different styles of animation and more. It's This led the way to... Adult Swim and, and other adult cartoons. Yeah, totally. Stripes? First radar movie that I ever got to see in a movie theater. Bill Murray... Uh, I had a good report card, and my dad's rule was you can see any radar movie if you get a good report card. So I picked Stripes. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I thought that was a pretty good movie. It was funny, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Clash of the Titans? Yeah, wonderful movie. I saw it several times in theaters. You really loved it. It, it was just a neat movie. It was it when I when it comes to my top fantasy movies, this is probably in my top five. That's how much I love this movie. 
Tarzan the Ape Man with Bo Derek. Another one I saw in Showtime. It was just, you know, it was a curiosity just because everyone talked about it because it had Bo Derek and she, she was coming off the movie 10. Her husband was the director and he made sure she had a prominent spot and she was featured on the movie poster and not Tarzan. That in itself was strange. Yeah, she was sold as the the star of the movie. Tarzan didn't have any lines in the movie. For your eyes only. One of my favorite James Bond movies of all time. I thought it was fantastic. Another Roger Moore movie. It, it was a great movie. The Cannonball Run. Yeah, that one, well, we just watched recently, but it was kind of, you know, it was one of those silly movies, but a lot of people liked Trucks it. Trucks and cars were a big deal back then. Like Smokey and the Bandit or that's something. It, yeah, that's it. They yeah. were riding off of that wave. I Believe it or not, I had a Cannonball Run poster on my bedroom door. <laughs> <laughs> Time Bandits. Horrible. I enjoyed it as a kid. We tried to watch it as an adult. It was very difficult sitting through. What did you think? Um, yeah, I couldn't get through it. I only saw the first few minutes of it. The Road Warrior. We cannot understate how important Mad Max and the Road Warrior was to cinema. The look of it. I mean, do you see the, reper- the, the the ripple effect of armor pads, shabby clothing, post-apocalyptic? We would see it in all forms of film and entertainment going forward. I mean, look at it. Think about it. Wrestlers were starting to dress like that. Uh, we look at Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. If you watch that, you look at Khan's henchmen. What do they look like? Yeah, like the, these road warrior people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is so amazing how these low-budget movies, Mad Max and the Road Warrior, made such an impact on and, – and, and music videos. That was the big deal, this road warrior look. Escape from New York. John Carpenter. It's one of those movies I like the character more than I actually like the movie, but it's iconic. It goes into Science Fiction Hall of Fame for a reason. It has so many memorable lines. Snake Plissken, I thought you were dead. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Evil Dead, this would go on to be a favorite amongst horror fans. American Werewolf in London, you want to talk about the impact this movie made on Michael Jackson? Uh, yeah, because he w- he wanted to have the same director for his thriller video. And the special effects were epic. It, it changed music videos forever. Porky's? Boy, this is a movie that we would watch on HBO, my brother and I, and kids in the neighborhood when we were kids. Uh, yeah, not good stuff for kids to watch, <laughs> but we did anyway. Well, I remember. I, I actually, I think I got to see that in a theater. Really? <laughs> I mean, you to me, it was the like strangest it was just a movie. movies as a kid in the movie theaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it had uh, Kim Cattrall, who later would do Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> and as a side note, she would go totally nude in Star Trek on the bridge and take pictures of herself. She did. <laughs> and yeah. got in trouble. With and what Leonard did Leonard Nimoy do when he found that film? Um, he destroyed it. He destroyed the film. Because he felt that it was not in good taste to have anyone naked on the bridge of the Enterprise. Isn't that amazing how attached to Trek Leonard Nimoy was to, 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 to feel that way? Yeah, he wanted to be... I mean, he already was associated with it, so he wanted it to be known as something dignified. Yeah. One of my all-time, this could be my number one favorite fantasy film of all time. This made a huge impact on me, and is by far my favorite telling of King Arthur is Excalibur. 
I love this movie so much. All of the imagery in it was just wonderful. Patrick Stewart? Yes, yes, definitely. Liam Neeson, he was in it. I mean, there, there's people who down the road would become famous. But with regard to soundtrack, it was epic. Speaking of epic soundtracks, Chariots of Fire was the number one movie of the year. I begged my father to see it because I love the theme song to Chariots of Fire by Vangelis. And he said, you're not going to like this movie. And I said, please, I love the song. And guess what? He brought me to the movie theater to see it. And what did you think? I thought it was horrible. I couldn't. It's like, oh, my God, this movie's terrible. It's just about some guys running. And I tried watching it as an adult. I said, eh, I'll watch it as an adult. Maybe I'll have a different viewpoint. Nah, I still don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I never Just saw about it. some guys running. Uh, I mean, it was, but Vangelis would go on to make the soundtrack to Blade Runner. I was, when I was this age as a kid, I was very into movie soundtracks. Not so much into popular music. I was venturing into popular music, but I mean, m- movie soundtracks to me were everything. Star Wars soundtrack, Star Trek soundtrack, Flash Gordon soundtrack. Like movie soundtracks were catching my attention constantly. And speaking of epic soundtracks, one of the soundtracks that to this day holds up is one of the best movies in 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Another movie I saw lots of times in the theater. I just thought it was, it was wonderful. I mean, all, all the adventure. Everything about and, and it. And I liked Harrison Ford too. Yeah. I mean, this, there's, that's why I have to laugh when that, it must have been a cranky reader that wrote into Star Lug saying, why do you have coverage of Raiders of the Lost Ark? We look at this list of movies and there are blurbs in sections of Starlog throughout the entire year of mentioning many of these movies. Not all of them are science fiction. Some of them just have crossovers with actors. Some of them are more action-based. But we have to look at all these movies to paint a picture of what it was like to be a sci-fi and fantasy fan during that time period. And to a degree, all of this shaped our scope of life going forward. I'm Mark McCray, the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. And if you're not listening to our podcast, then you're missing out on amazing interviews with Larry Houston, Tom Tatawanovich, Keone Young, Michael Swanigan, Ned Hastings, Bill Gallier, Dan Gilvazan, Rob Lamb, and so many others. Kick back and let Dan Clink and I peel back the curtain on the animation industry. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast can be found on the ESO Network and all podcasting platforms. We're going to close out this episode of Star Pod Log. As always, we're talking about an advertisement that's found in Star Log magazine. This one is from the Thinking Cap Company. It's a full-page ad of different ball caps that you could get that are sci-fi and fantasy-themed, including the caps that were seen in Outland, such as the Con Am cap. Also, the Alien cap from the USS Nostromo. Also, the Alien Kit, a series of patches that you could put on. And the Empire Likes Caps. You can join the Imperial Guard or the Rebel Forces. So these caps range in price, such as the Outland Caps were $9.95 each. The Alien Cap was $8.95. It would also have the option of just getting the patch individually for $5.25. The Alien Kit was just a massive kit because it was a portfolio with pictures, whole other things for $80. 
and they were numbered and authenticated. Even a Dragon Slayer cap, nine ninety five. Empire Strikes cap, uh, Empire likes caps. Uh, I, I like it how they don't say Empire Strikes Back. Empire likes caps. The Imperial Guard was nine ninety five. The Rebel Forces was eight ninety five. The Thinking Cap Company, Los Angeles, California. I only saw somebody wear the Con Am cap once, and I knew what it was, and he was so happy that I knew what Outland was. Yeah. Yeah. He looked nothing like Sean Connery, though. Okay. I I mean, I don't remember these being big sellers. I mean, I don't remember hearing about them much or seeing them. No, at the time, I, I didn't know anybody that ordered anything from it. But now as an adult collector, I think they're fantastic. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Good night, See you all. next time.